war. Okay. Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Oh. There's two of them and two billion dollars worth of us. If the three of us don't work together, billions of people will die. Your sister is one of the toughest, baddest, most capable women I've ever encountered. No one could do it better. What kind of girl? I see what you're doing. You think I'm stupid? Of course I think you're stupid. Oh, H to the OV. For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Since the first Fast and Furious movie in 2001, the franchise has earned more than $5 billion worldwide. What started with a down-dirty street racing picture has become a phenomenon, celebrated for wild storytelling, wilder action, and diversity on screen that can play to audiences all over the globe. The new film, Fast and Furious Presents, Hobbs and Shaw, directed by David Leach, is the ninth film in the series and the first spinoff. The story is that American lawman Luke Hobbs, played by Dwayne Johnson, and English rogue agent Deckard Shaw, played by Jason Statham, are thrown together to retrieve a deadly virus, which has infected Shaw's sister Hattie, played by Vanessa Kirby, before she and it fall into the hands of the villainous Brixton Lore, played by Idris Elba. Got all that? So I'm joined by my colleagues, LA Times movie writer Jen Yamato. Hello, hello. Hashtag Justice for Han. Times film critic Justin Chang. Hello. And as our very special guest, Woo-hoo! filmmaker and showrunner Ben David Grabinski, who also happens to be one of the most notable experts on the Fast and Furious franchise that we know. I don't know if the word expert definitely <laughs> applies, but I will take it. Well, let's start our engines. Let's get going here. And now... Start our engines! Oh, how many puns are we going to get to? Hopefully not too many. I mean, we have Justin <laughs> here, That's so right. the bar is oh. high. Now, I want to kind of take it back to the beginning. Ben, David, maybe you can talk a little bit about just, to your mind, what started as almost this like neo-exploitation picture, I don't think was meant to become a multi-billion dollar franchise. Like, how did the first movie, The Fast and the Furious, become this series that we now know? Well, for me, I remember being in high school and... I went to go see Fast and the Furious, and there'd been like a Super Bowl commercial that I believe used a Limp Bizkit song that seemed kind of exciting. I didn't have much expectations, and I loved the movie instantly. It was definitely aimed at my generation, and then when I was a freshman in college, literally every person in my dorm had a DVD of Fast and the Furious, which was a wild experience. And I personally... I've seen them all in a theater, and I became pretty obsessive somewhere in between Tokyo Drift and the fourth one, which had maybe the best teaser trailer in the history of cinema. It's a very weird situation where it's something that just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger to a point now where it's something that has sort of become something a little bit different than it was, which I guess we'll probably end up getting into. A lot different, I would say. Yes. uh, It has some (laughs) sort of surface elements, but the kind of the core identity of what they are has been a little bit more amorphous. Yeah, I, I would say. And to me, one of the reasons that I have so enjoyed this franchise is watching how it has evolved so drastically, more so than arguably any other film franchise that there ever has been. And so watching that change, but remembering the roots that created that initial hashtag family has been kind of a rewarding experience from a fan perspective, I think. So it's wild to me that we are here today 
after eight and counting Fast and Furious official Fast and Furious movies to talk about a spinoff that itself clearly aims to spin off its own mini franchise and continue to make movies. Justin, I want to bring you into the conversation simply in that these Fast and Furious movies, these kind of movies, in some ways, correct me if I'm wrong, they're intended to be kind of critic-proof in a way. (laughs) And I'm interested to know your perspective on them. Do you come to a movie like this, a series of movies like this, knowing that they have the fandom that they do? And does that change your perspective and your approach to these kind of movies when you get, you know, not just one, but two, but like six, seven, eight movies deep? That's a very interesting question because I think when reviews of these movies or of superhero comic book movies get out there, there's always this perception that fans should be reviewing the movie. And I understand where that comes from. It's like people say, well, why would you send someone who hates this stuff to it? I think the truth is you need all kinds of reviews. You need all kinds of critical takes on everything. And I'm as interested in hearing from someone who hates these movies and thinks they're worthless and as I am from someone who loves them unabashedly. And I fall probably in the middle, closer to the love, because I do like these movies. I should have introduced myself probably as the LA Times as a resident non-expert on the Fast and Furious franchise because I can't even tell you, frankly, if I've seen every single one. The chronology kind of blurs and splinters in my mind but i have very fond memories of the franchise and i think that what makes it interesting from a franchise perspective is that this is one that through all its whatever things that seem like imperfections in these movies are actually real evidence of a human touch and i think that that is evident in the fact that this series did not have a perfectly mapped out marvelized 42 movie whatever it is thing going forward and Tokyo Drift kind of disrupted everything and brought a really interesting sensibility and put it on a really interesting temporal uh, shift but also I remember just have really fond memories I saw Fast Five I think at my dollar theater when it was like misprojected and the floor was really sticky and crummy it was just one of the more perfect movie going experiences (laughs) I've had it was just perfect and I think that that movie in particular just the outlandishness of the stunts and yet the complete conviction with which I'm starting to sound like a fan aren't I it's weird it's it's infectious you know there was just it has that right balance I think of of outlandishness and total conviction with what they're doing and then I think you know with the death of Paul Walker and Furious 7 in particular just being this soaring emotional high in that movie that of course is rooted in real life tragedy and that too is shows you the human element i mean not many franchises have endured or could withstand a real life blow like that and i think it is a testament to the love that's been poured into the series that it is still going strong even if some of the more recent movies maybe leave something to be desired well fast five has maybe i think in my 36 years on the planet, one of the high points of me being in a theater, watching a movie in real time with the choice the filmmakers made, which was, you're like, okay, The Rock is the bad guy in this movie. The ad campaign set him up where he's like, no matter what, never let him get in their cars. So you're very excited. They have this formidable foe. You're enjoying the movie. And then like, I don't know, like an hour and 40 minutes into the movie, the bad guy's crew all get murdered by someone and then Dom and Brian come in and rescue him. And then he says, I'll ride with you, Toretto. I remember like sitting in the theater when that happened. And it was like, they broke rules, man. Like it felt so <laughs> exciting. You spent this whole movie and you're like, oh, wow. The third act is going to be him with them. Like 
there's no way that this can't be the greatest thing ever. And it was. Tokyo Drift is probably my favorite, but Fast Five to me was almost like if you created a perfect blockbuster experience in a lab or via magic. And it's not something I think they can kind of probably get back to outside of, you know, increasing the scale. The first movie, I think, established a lot of these core themes that have really resonated through the franchise, um, for better and worse, I think. But it was basically, like, especially at the time where it's coming from, it owes a great debt to movies like Point Break. I think owes a great debt to Hong Kong cop and robber movies. And so it's interesting to see that the origins in the first film is like a simple story, relatively speaking. Two guys in Los Angeles chasing each other who uh, find common ground and become effectively brothers in a way. A muscle car and sweat in that first movie. And it has, over the course of its life, turned into an ensemble global revenge franchise, spy movie. And that's certainly where we find it now with Hobbs and Shaw, which is a thousand percent a spy movie. But Hobbs and Shaw is also now a comedy, which I would argue is one of the newest changes that they sort of experiment with here. Because one thing I have always appreciated about the franchise, and Jen, I specifically remember having this conversation with you, <laughs> is how the the franchise always kind of leaned into its ridiculousness. And to the point where, like, I was confused by your fandom, and I had to ask you if you meant it. Because I didn't understand if you were kind of being, like, ironic and funny about it or really liked them. And you do have to kind of really get steeped in the franchise to understand that they are rooted in melodrama and that there is like this seriousness to them, even as they're like throwing cars out of planes and it's like the silliest thing you've ever seen. Well, I think in Hobbs and Shaw, they sort of seem aimed at a newer part of the fandom who is there just for the ridiculous elements. Whereas I feel the people like me and Jen who legitimately like would sit and talk about characters like Han and their relationships. And that was the stuff that drove us to the movie. I think the fandom has become so big. Their bet right now is that most of the reason people are watching it is the scale and the pyrotechnics and stuff. And Hobbs and Shaw seems more aimed at those people, which could be valid, but I'll let you go. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you in terms of Hobbs and Shaw. Because for me, when I think about this whole series, this whole lore, I think of the very deeply emotional moments, you know, the character moments. I also enjoy the tongue-in-cheek, tongue-not-in-cheek melodrama of it all, as well as the increasingly ridiculous exploits. I've always liked that part of it, I think. And so it's also interesting to see how the architects of this franchise have had to at least be mindful of what they think people like about these movies and these stories and characters, bring those core ideas back and try to top themselves like cars flying out of skyscrapers, cars flying, you know, <laughs> Fast Furious 2, a.k.a. Too Fast, Too Furious has one of the first instances of a car actually, like, flying, being airborne. That was one of the first, like, physics-defying moments of the franchise, and it, like, works in this thrilling way that I think was something that the filmmakers, or at least the studio, to some degree, saw that people were responding to. To get us into talking about Hobbs and Shaw, Justin, you're writing the sort of the LA Times' review of the movie. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you, like, how did you feel about the way the spinoff nature of yeah. this movie? Did it still feel like a Fast and Furious movie to you? Or does Hobbs and Shaw feel like something totally different? 
it feels like it takes a lot of those elements and also feeds those elements into a Mission Impossible knockoff, basically. And that's not the worst thing. There are, of course, spy elements, heist elements have been part of this franchise for a while, so it's not like it's some flying leap. On paper, I was actually looking forward to this movie, I think, because I do think Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham have sort of become the stealth MVPs, sort of, which is an interesting thing in light of whether fans feel conflicted over Shaw. I wanted to like the movie more than I think it did. I felt... I think I've seen Dwayne Johnson and just how many different buddy comedy pairings now. And I actually kind of like them a lot and I like <laughs> him so much. I mean, but there was something that just felt overly canned about a lot of the beats, I think, in this movie. Even the banter, some of which is very funny and some of which I think is just kind of flatly written. It's just the endless streams of insult comedy back and forth. And so actually to give a little sense of uh, what that banter is like, that uh, we actually have a clip here where we have a little bit of uh, Jason Statham's character of Shaw explaining to Dwayne Johnson's character of Hobbs kind of what the backstory is with regards to Idris Elba's character, Brixton Lore. You want to tell me just what in the fresh turkey hell we're dealing with here? Long story. It's a ghost. It's supposed to be dead. Eight years ago, I put a bullet through his brain. Great. So we're being chased by the Terminator. I don't think he's going to make it. Well, I don't think he can see over the steering wheel. Buckle up, fat boy. I'm going to save your life again. Vroom, vroom. Oh, all these, all these fast and furious sounds. I, you know what's interesting? Eight years ago, I put a bullet through his brain. Eight years ago was 2011. Eight years ago was when Fast Five came out. Hmm. Interesting. I think comedy has always been, whether it's intentional or unintentional, you know, that's been a fixture of the series, of course, but it was always there. But here it feels, by leaning into it so much, they are, I mean, maybe it's just branding, because they're, you know, the brand this is an offshoot. It's a spinoff. So that's okay to be different and to be more overtly comedic, but... um I felt like I was watching a cartoon. And I don't think that the other Fast and Furious movies have quite crossed that line. I mean, there's artifice, there is insanity and preposterousness, but not quite. I don't know. It's a fine, it's a hard needle to thread. And it's, this, interesting yeah. to, it's interesting to hear you mention the Mission Impossible movies, simply for the fact that yeah. Vanessa, Vanessa Kirby, Kirby who was I, in the, Mission Impossible Fallout yes. and played a somewhat similar role. A somewhat similar, you know, a femme fatale, and he or she is that, although she's she's you know Shaw's sister and I think she's great I mean I think she love her on the crown too I mean, she's a fantastic actress and she really steals a couple of scenes quite a few scenes even from the leads which is grand larceny and I think of. it's because <laughs> she feels much more grounded than they do she doesn't quite exist in as you say the sort of cartoon the same sticky kind of roles that they do and so it, it feels different and I feel like it has to be said just has fantastic eyebrows and enviable hair that it's just fun to watch. <laughs> Even after she's been like beaten up and thrown out buildings and ever, she just looks. In addition <laughs> to actually really enjoying her character and her performance, you see what she's doing. She and Idris Elba really, I think, elevate the film in their supporting roles. And Vanessa Kirby is kind of a revelation to me because I haven't seen very much of her work prior to this. In addition to having amazing eyelashes, I got a lot of eyelash envy in this movie. I think it's really great to see arguably 
one of the strongest and more complexly written female characters in this franchise. I know that Michelle Rodriguez has spoken out in regards to the core films in the series about the writing and presence of women in the franchise. And I think the character of Hattie is a nice addition in that way. I thought she was by far the most interesting thing in the movie. Uh, I mean, the movie, the interesting thing to me about Hobbs and Shaw is if you watched the first one and then this back to back, it's almost a 100% departure. Whereas if you watched like the first one, then seven, the scale's different and they've introduced some other kind of elements to it, but you still have some street racing. You still have the LA locale. You still have a lot of the same cultural elements and the same kind of tonal choices. But this one, you have the director of Deadpool 2 coming in and doing his approach to action. You have two characters who are not necessarily living in that kind of melodramatic space of the other movies as the leads. You have purely the spy stuff, and then you have, like, the tentpole MacGuffin of, like, here's the thing everyone's chasing. The bad guy has his kind of point of view of why he's using it, and that is what strings together these set pieces. With that and some of the cameos, which I don't want to spoil, to me feel like a definite effort to set this apart in that way. And if that is like a choice, then that's cool. They're saying, hey, the Hobbs and Shaw franchise has this tone, this level of seriousness, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and we're also setting up that it's going to have these other people in it. So it's sort of a completely different alternate universe tangent. Right, it's kind of like how the Star Wars franchise branched off into these side adventures, although not quite tonally shifting as starkly as Hobbs and Shaw does, um, which has, you know, not really been done before in this way and with Hollywood's Hollywood movies. And I don't know. I think whether or not people like Hobbs and Shaw will depend on how much they can accept that deviation from what yeah. they think means Fast and Furious. Well, I don't think you or I can really speak on behalf of like what the average person is wanting out of these movies. <laughs> right. There's a very, there's a specificity. You know what? To I heard a lot of um, people reacting gleefully at the banter yeah. when I saw Hobbs and Shaw. People and people love The Rock. He's yeah. like arguably our most likable movie star. So totally. it seemed, you know, in the audience last night that it was working. The totally. comedy was working for people. Uh, I wish the comedy were. Better, but I think those scenes will be catnip audiences anyways. I think they'll just eat that up because they're both, you know, and what they lack in great writing, they just make up for in persona. I mean, so both of those two are the oil and water combination that they are, I think does work very well. I think the movie also, whether purposely or inadvertently, puts its finger on an irony here, which is in the Brixton lore character, the villain, and at one point identifies himself or somebody calls him Black Superman. And so there's this conflict between man and machines because he wants to use this virus to wipe out half of humanity. And I guess the other half will be, you know, um, it's robot kind of people, robot people. <laughs> it's kind of a weird Thanos, cyber Thanos kind of scheme that is working out here. And 
the subtext of that to me is that the Fast and Furious movies have always been about this glorious alchemy between man and machine. And so here it's played that it becomes literally. But I think maybe the irony is that the movie feels really mechanical and feels really derivative and feels like it is lacking some of that more analog human touch that I like about the first the actual Fast and Furious movies. And now, Jen, you wrote a story for us here at the LA Times where you spoke to Dwayne Johnson about a sort of a really interesting and specific element of the movie where the final sequence of the film, the story takes place in Samoa. Dwayne Johnson is of Samoan heritage, and they sort of made a specific effort to include Native Samoan culture in the story. Like, tell me a little bit about that. Let me tell you about one of my favorite parts of Hobson Shaw. It is that Dwayne Johnson, who becomes a producer on this movie, as well as Jason Statham, both stars are also producers and have input creatively into where this spinoff goes. Dwayne Johnson is half Samoan and half black, and he really, I think, intentionally took this opportunity to work his Samoan heritage into the canon of one of the biggest movie franchises on the planet. So you see during the what I would call the fourth act, they're not even three acts. It's the second movie. third act. That's basically what <laughs> second third yes. The second third act takes place in Samoa and for part of the time you're like, when are they gonna get to Samoa? And when you get there, it's when the movie dives into Hobbes's family. The family he left behind that we didn't know about till now. But I felt that it was a more human exploration of that concept and more human expansion of his character. So he spoke to me about bringing that in, why it was important to him, and sort of how powerful that was to him. They performed on set, and you see it in the movie, something called a Siva Tau, which is a Samoan traditional war dance. Very deeply meaningful, sacred, and they created it for the movie with the help of Samoan cultural consultants. He had his mother on set the day that they performed it. They did not film it 20 times, as many scenes often are filmed over and over and over again on big movies like this. He told me that he asked director David Leach specifically to sort of take care with the filming of this scene. And so they filmed it only a few times, he said. And it was so powerful for him in the moment. You can tell hearing him talk about it. He said that he looked over after the take and his mom was weeping, weeping because she had never heard him speak to that extent in Samoan before. And so I think it's actually really special that a star of his caliber and platform takes that opportunity to work something like the Samoan culture into a blockbuster franchise that has never really dived so deeply into something so personal like that. I think it's kind of one of the more special parts of this movie. And it also it brings it back to family for the character of Hobbes and also the story deals with the family of Shaw in a lot of ways too. So Ben David, for you as the franchise kind of moves forward from here, like for you as a fan, like where do you, where do you want to see it go? What do you want from the Fast and Furious family? Well, to me, one, I'd like to have them address the idea that Shaw threw a grenade or two into a hospital. And killed Han. Yeah, you know, there's a couple things going on at the same time. It's like I have a little bit of a existential crisis about the movies in a way that is ridiculous to say out loud. Like, I don't want to be like one of those people who acts like the movie should be made just for them. But at the same time, 
it's interesting because Fast 8 to me felt like, oh, well, we're just going to go in this other direction now, which is fine because, you know, without Brian and Paul, the character and actor, and without some of these sort of underlying elements, maybe it should just be a franchise that's based on just delivering these big set pieces and this fun stuff. Because if it's been anything, even though I think the first seven movies are kind of cohesive in a way, it is something that constantly reinvents itself. So I'm just wondering where it's going to go, and I'm pretty open-minded about it. But it would be nice if we got justice for Han in some way, because uh, he did get murdered by Shaw, which is an odd choice. But it's interesting that in a franchise where the theme of betrayal is so throughout, it sounds like, and I've talked to Jen a little bit about this, but it's like, it feels as if the franchise has betrayed you as fans, right? Well, I think... In this level, on this point. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. It feels like the forgiving Shaw is a betrayal of the core values of this franchise that defined this franchise, which is why I'm hoping that Han issue can and should be addressed. Um, And uh, personally, I'm hoping that the franchise goes to space and also brings him back either from the dead or by revealing that his death was faked the whole time and he's been alive and thriving this whole time. I should take a moment also to introduce the fifth chair in the studio, which is being occupied by the Han Memorial. Uh, It's a replica of the funeral scene within the movie where Han is memorialized by his Fast and Furious family and it's it came to work with me today as a reminder of you know the hashtag justice for Han is important to remember not just for what it means within canon and what it means for the franchise you know staying true to its core values but i think i mean when you do away with one of your fan favorite characters who also happens to be uh one of the only asian characters in the franchise and he's killed by a white british guy who then gets to be a hero i would like to to see some answers so you know hashtag justice for han lives on in the studio Well, one of the most cathartic things to see in a movie or a TV show or Hamilton is forgiveness. It's really fun seeing characters forgive each other. There's something like, I think honestly, and I mean this as earnestly as possible, seeing that in storytelling is something that can be very satisfying. But first we need Shaw to apologize for murdering Han because he hasn't done that yet. So maybe if he apologizes, then there could be forgiveness and it'd be great. But until that day. A corona for Shaw the day he apologizes and not... Until then. Yeah, okay. I think we agree on that one. And that seems like a perfect place for us to wrap this up. And uh, Ben David, where can people find you online? Or actually, what uh, what should people be looking out for? What projects do you have coming up? Uh, well, I am doing a new version of Are You Afraid of the Dark uh, this October on Nickelodeon, which is going to hopefully be a wonderful show for 10-year-olds or people who watched the original when they were 10 years old. And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at BD Grabinski. And Jen? You can find me at, at Jen Yamato. And you can find me at Justin C. Chang. And I'm, of course, at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks to our producer, Katie Cooper, and our engineer, Mike Heflin. Listen to The Real on Apple, Spotify, at latimes.com slash podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. We're going to need cars and guns. Oh, I can handle that part. (laughs) I'm sorry to bring this here, Mama. Luke, this is your home. Go with that cool one. We're going to get one star more and ask whoopee.